Mike. Well, um, good morning. My name is Leah Pavel. I am one of the pastors here. I go with this guy, Josh, who does, who does not normally lead worship. Our worship leader, Jessica, is here, but she, you know, we like to give each other a week off uh, every now and then, so things are kind of shifted. I'm not our primary teaching pastor if you're not normally here, but I, I jump up here every now and then and say some things. Um, this, this morning, I, I got to be honest, we have kind of this tradition in this church where we have a time of pre-service prayer um, before church where we gather about 15 minutes ahead and pray and just seek the Lord for what he's doing, you know, in the church and our service that day, listen for things he wants to say to us or whatever, the way he's guiding us. And it's kind of become almost this tradition, um, not of our own choosing, but where the Lord will often confirm what is in the sermon in that time. Well, this morning we're sitting there and I'm listening for the Lord, for someone to say something that has something to do with my sermon and I hear nothing and I'm getting real nervous thinking, uh-oh, this is, this is not what the Lord's saying this morning. This is not right. But Amy, when you got up and, and shared the verse from Revelation, I, I, I looked at Luke and Josh and I just smiled and I said, that's, that's the point of my sermon. Um, so if, if you zone out for the rest of the time and you heard Amy, you, you have the nugget. Uh, but I, I do have some, some more things to share with you. Uh, so this morning we are finally wrapping up that series that we have been in on the temple. Um, and th this is a series that we have been doing, um, nice and dramatic intro there. Love that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we've been in a series on the temple and it's a series that we have basically been looking at through the lens of the book of Hebrews and the way that the, the temple is talked about in the, the book of Hebrews. But as you probably noticed, if you've been here for any part of it, this isn't really a series of, on the temple um, as if it would be like if you were walking, watching a documentary on the History Channel or something about the temple. Because our purpose in this series isn't just to learn like the facts of the building itself. That's not what we're going for. Um, it's more about a story. And the story that we're looking at is the story of our creator and our creator that created us as part of his creation. He has revealed himself to us and he has come to dwell with his people because what is the temple? It's God's dwelling. It's his place of presence. It's his place of rule and reign and rest, the place where he is. If we look at that, the overall story of scripture in Genesis, that place was the garden. God was present there with Adam and Eve. That's where his presence was with them. In the Old Testament, we have it in the tabernacle first, where he comes and he dwells with his people in the wilderness. And then we have it in the physical building of the temple in Jerusalem, once that's built. But with the new covenant that Jesus himself inaugurated, the house of God began to look and be something very, very different. It shifted from this building of stone where they had the pillars and, you know, the mount in Jerusalem and altars and sacrifices and all these things and this inner golden room, this holy of holies, to something more profound, something close. So I want to give you kind of an overview of this shift, almost a summary of the way that this happens. And I'm going to do it actually using someone else's words because he just did it better than I did. Um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, if you ever watch those videos, he articulated it so well. So this is like a summary of the temple throughout scripture. Jesus said that his presence, his rest and his rule was filling the earth through his own life, death and resurrection. Jesus was claiming 
that he was the true temple. And this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers. So that they would become many temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. This is the Bible's vision of church which is described as a temple, not a building, but people. Like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. Adrian spoke a couple of weeks ago after we all got back from the uh, regional conference, and this is what she talked about. This passage about living stones, this concept from Peter's first, lever, le Peter's first letter of God's people as living stones, that his presence is in them and they are being built into not a physical temple, but a spiritual house for God, in contrast to those physical stones that comprise the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's this temple language that we see, like what we see in Peter, all throughout the New Testament, such as in this verse here, Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. <clears throat> Verses like this one paint for us over and over again this picture of this shift that has happened where God's presence, his dwelling place, the place that he chooses to reside and to rest, is no longer a physical location, a geographical locale, but it's not, and not in a building, but in his people with them and actually in them, both individually and corporately. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Corinth, and he is telling them how they should behave and respond, given this new reality that God's presence is actually in them. Like, how should you be? How should you behave? How should you relate to each other in the world? What should you do and not do, given that God's presence is physically in you dwelling in you. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 6:19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Now, as we live in a very individualistic culture. I am tripping all over my words this morning. Sorry. I'll try and slow down. We live in a very individualistic culture. And in this individualistic American culture, we may have the tendency to read this verse with a particular emphasis or priority on the individuality of this verse in a way that prioritizes the, the one, the individual. You know, like we're all little like standalone temples, I think is how we often have a tendency to read this. Like, you know, well, Amy's a temple, and Josh is a temple, and Nicole's a temple, and Luke's a temple, and I'm a temple, and we're all temples, and yay, we all get a temple. And it reminds me, I, I, this is, y'all will boo me, and it's okay, you don't have to come next week. But there's this meme that I, I threw up there that's like, it's like Oprah giving out cars. You know, you're a temple, they're a temple, everybody's a temple. And, and that's, I think, how historically a lot of churches have the tendency to read this. And yes, that's true. We are each individually a temple of God's presence. Thank goodness. That's what we get from salvation. But what our English translations actually lack here 
is a way to accurately articulate not just the singular you, but the plural as a group. All of us. Stop it. You took my punchline. In other words, Paul was saying y'all. Yes, he was speaking Southern. So a good translation of this verse. Good grief. Do <laughs> note, note for the recording. <clears throat> Do you not know that y'all, y'all as a group, are a temple of the Holy Spirit? And yes, as a Southern girl, I love that, right? Y'all, us together, the body of believers, God's filling us. He's dwelling with us. He's resting with us. He's living with us. And so we have this image all the way through scripture, all the way to the end of the story in Revelation, which Amy so kindly read for us, and I didn't even have in my notes to read. But you got to hear how she read the verse about God dwelling in his, pe in his people as his temple, as his resting place. And when we get to Revelation, the picture there that you see is new creation. God, John has this vision, and he's seeing the picture of new creation and the work that God is doing, but there's no temple there. There's no building there, and there doesn't need to be. The temple doesn't need to be rebuilt or restored or fixed or relocated or any of those things because God's dwelling place, as we see in Revelation, is directly with and in his people, both individually, yes, but also corporately as a group as they stand and worship him together. So lots of things shift in this change from the physical building of the temple to the spiritual house that God has with his people and dwelling with his people. And I'll just go through this really quickly. Um, just We've already highlighted some of these, but from the physical temple we had, we've talked about this. It's, it's built from earthly stones. It's rock. It's earth. It's a physical dwelling. But with God's spiritual house, we now have a house built of living stones, his actual people filled with his spirit residing with them. In the physical temple, we have this imperfect system of sacrifices that happens continually, kind of kicking that can of sin down the road. And yet, in the reality of God's spiritual house with us, we have one sacrifice, the Lamb of God, for all time. The only sacrifice that's needed. No more are needed. It's a perfect sacrifice for all, for all time. In the temple, ceremonial cleansing happened by ritual. But in God's spiritual house, we are cleansed by our sin, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. A work that he has done on the cross. No longer do we have to go through that process of ceremonial cleansing. In the physical temple, people often traveled from very, very far away to come and be with God's people and be in his presence. And yet with God in his spiritual house of his people, we as his temple and temples we steward the presence of the Holy Spirit wherever we go so that we know his kingdom is always close and at hand because he dwells within his people. And so it's no longer this hard to reach inaccessible thing. God is close because his people steward his presence wherever they go. And in the physical temple, we have these priests in this Levitical system who were praying and interceding and doing ministry on behalf of the people. And yet God filling his people has changed us and shifted all of us into a royal priesthood comprised of all the believers filled with God's spirit, able to 
as we say in the vineyard, everyone gets to play, right? That we all get to be used and ministered to by each other in God's house. But the one thing, I won't say the one thing, but one thing, a thing that never shifts from God's physical temple to his spiritual house is that regardless of whether we're talking about the Old Testament physical temple building or we're talking about God living with his people, dwelling in his people as a spiritual house, is that his house has always been and is always meant to be a house of prayer. That never changes. I want to look at the context of, of two different occasions this morning. One is when God fills his physical temple in Jerusalem during King Solomon's reign. And the other is when he fills his spiritual house in the book of Acts. His people gathered together at Pentecost. And so we're going to read some pretty large chunks of scripture. Um, so have your Bibles ready. I don't have all of this on the screen. It was just too much. So grab your Bibles or your apps or whatever. Um, but, but don't panic. It's okay because we're not going to you know, dissect these enormous chunks of scripture in detail. We're really kind of going for the big picture here. So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to go to Second Chronicles. And if you want to be flipping, once you find Second Chronicles 6 is where we're going to be, if you want to go ahead and flip to Acts 2 and kind of like put a, a paper or, you know, like a welcome card or your finger or something there and hold it, we're going to flip over there in a minute. But to set this passage up, the context is the temple has just been finished. David, originally King David, wanted to build the temple for God. That was his heart's desire. That was not God's plan. It was his son, King Solomon, who eventually got to build the temple. And Solomon, if you know anything about Solomon and his rule and reign, like he spared no expense on anything. He, this was an elaborate process. The artisans, the best woodworking and metal craft and woodcraft and, and tapestries and, and dyes, it, it was elaborate. I mean, he imported things from all over. And it's just this amazing thing to see, the whole nine yards. And when he's finally done with the actual construction of the temple, as God instructed him to do it, and then all the artistry on that, he calls all of Israel together. You know, this is no small party. This is a lot of people. He calls all of Israel together, and then they bring up the tabernacle, which was the tent that God's presence met with them in, in the wilderness, that has the Ark of the Covenant and all that. And they bring the Ark up and they begin to sacrifice at the temple and worship. And it says that they sacrificed so many cattle and sheep, they couldn't even be numbered. Now, in other places in scripture, they numbered them when this was happening. So we're talking, and those were hundreds of thousands. So we're talking hundreds of thousands of animals being sacrificed before the Ark in, at the temple. <clears throat> And they're worshiping and they're playing and the musicians have their instruments and they're singing and they're sacrificing. And, and you're looking at the scene and this is like the biggest housewarming party ever because it's God's house, right? This is his house. And so this is what King Solomon is doing. And then the king gets up to speak. And the first thing he does is he blesses the people that are there. He blesses the people of Israel. But then he turns and he prays this prayer of dedication over the temple. And we're going to actually read this prayer. And like I said, it's a good chunk and it's lengthy. So follow along and hang in there. But we're, we're going to kind of see the big picture of what's happening. So we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 12. Your Bible might have a little heading that says Solomon's prayer of dedication. 
Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and he had it placed in the center of the outer court. I mean, you got to have a good stage for any like worship service, right? That's what he's doing. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant, David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant, David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law, as you have done. And now, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer. Now, I want you to notice as we continue to read how integral prayer is in this whole thing. How it's the focus of Solomon's dedication. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry in the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy, because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave to them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up, and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of his afflictions and pains, and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men, so that they will fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land you gave your fathers. Gave our fathers, excuse me. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, 
Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, the O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your saints rejoice in your goodness, O Lord God. Do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to your servant David. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled his temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good. His love endures forever. <sighs> it's a big one right? What a prayer. What a scene is set here. Here's the king of all Israel kneeling, his hands outstretched, praying this prayer of dedication over this temple. And what Solomon is envisioning here is a picture of God's people praying at all times and in all circumstances in this place that they have made for him to dwell. And the highlights of that, if you look back through, it's like when you need mercy and forgiveness, we'll pray. When you are defeated by your enemies, pray. When you lack resources of provision, we'll pray. When nature itself seems to be coming against you, we'll pray. When you are afflicted by disaster or disease, pray. When you find yourself on the outside, when you feel like you don't belong, when you're not with the group, pray. In the midst of conflict, pray. When you've been wronged or you've wronged someone else, pray. When you need your sins forgiven in an attitude of repentance, pray. The whole point here that we're supposed to see is that prayer is not meant to be just the mortar in between the stones of the temple that holds it all together. It's not meant to be just the transition between our worship songs or a prelude to the sermon or a prologue to ministry time. Prayer is meant to be the atmosphere itself of the place where the people of God are gathered together to worship his name. 
So God comes and he fills the temple with the literal fire of his presence. Now I want you to pay particular attention, and this is as much as we're going to dig back in this passage, but to those couple of verses there that were just up, verses 32 and 33. And look at what it's focused on. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so all the peoples of earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. So far, this is mostly about God's people, right? This is pretty focused on Israel. It's, a, it's, a, it's an Israel party. They're, they're having their, their party at this temple that has been long awaited. But when we look at this particular part of the prayer that God put in Solomon's heart, we see that he's praying for foreigners too. Those who aren't yet part of God's people yet. They're people who've heard of the Lord. They've heard his name because of all the great works he's done amongst his own people. They've seen his deeds and they are drawn to this place of his presence. Solomon, in his God-given wisdom, knows and acknowledges that one of the main things to come from a prayerful people living with their God, filled with his presence and his spirit, is that even the foreigner, even the one who's not a part of this yet, even the one who doesn't know the Lord for himself, who is not of God's people, will be drawn in, and they will see too how great, how mighty, and how faithful the Lord God is. And they too will encounter him at his place of dwelling. And they will know his name and fear him. So do you guys remember the story, hopefully, of the triumphal entry? You know, we, we talk about this right before Easter. It's the week before Easter when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And he's coming into town. And it's the week of that he's going to be crucified. We call that Holy Week. And all these events lead up to his crucifixion. But when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what's like one of the first things he does? He goes and visits the temple. He heads straight for the temple. But the problem is when he gets there, he's not very happy. And why is that? Because when he gets there, he sees that the temple isn't looking like what the temple was supposed to look like. It doesn't look like that prayer that we just read from Solomon's dedication. The people in there have turned it way more into a place of commerce and selfish ambition than it is a house of prayer. And he's not okay with it. So what does he do? He goes and gets a whip. I mean, he's like flipping tables and taking names. Yeah, I found this. I love this meme. This, this literally popped up in my Facebook feed today. And I was like, oh, that's fitting. I'll put that in there. I'm here to heal lepers and whip hypocrites. And I'm all out of lepers. <laughs> So he's not happy and he's dealing with it because his he's seeing that his father's house isn't the house of prayer for all people that it's supposed to be. And so what does he do? He takes care of it, but then he also, he says, he explains, and this is from Mark eleven seventeen. This is what he says. Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, you know, in the New Testament, Whenever anyone says, is it not written or it is written, they're referring back to something in the Old Testament, right? Because that was the scripture they had at the time. 
Well, Jesus is actually quoting the book of Isaiah here. So let's go and look at this really quickly. Isaiah 56, and I do have this one up. Isaiah is giving this oracle. That's, that's what they called the, the prophecies. That's what they were called. Where the Lord is once again, just like in the prayer of Solomon's dedication, concerned with those who are on the outside. And so we're going to read Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them. Besides those who are already gathered. His house is a house of prayer for all, for all nations, for all people. And he himself is gathering those who aren't on the inside. They're not the wealthy ones and the important ones and the ones who everybody looks to. He is bringing in those who are not yet a part of his people, those who love him and who serve them. He's going to make sure there's a place for them. And he's going to make sure their sacrifices are accepted and that they are filled with joy in his presence. All right. So with that in mind, let's flip over to Acts 2. And we're going to look at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And hopefully you will see some similarities here. So 2 Chronicles is God filling his physical temple. And Acts 2 is God filling his spiritual temple. Jesus has just left. He's just gone back up to heaven. You know, his disciples saw him ascend into the clouds. And it, the Bible says that his disciples, not just the, the 12, but a good number of them, are gathered together constantly in prayer. And so we come to Acts 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. See, they were y'all too. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who speak Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elam Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Well, Peter, who's there in this scene, the same Peter that tells us that we're living stones of God's spirit, of God's house, he stands up and tells them what it means. And he basically presents the gospel. He tells them, this is who Jesus is. This is why he died. This is what happened. And this is what you have to do in response if you want to be saved and be a part of his kingdom and a part of his people. And he gives them the gospel. 
And so if we drop down to verse 37, the people respond. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all the Lord would call. And so they respond and they hear the gospel. They hear the invitation that it's for them. And 3,000 people say yes to Jesus that day. They accepted Peter's message. They repented. They were baptized and they were welcomed into God's family and kingdom that day. And so just like at the dedication of the temple, God comes to live not only with his people, but in his people. He fills his spiritual house, this time of living stones, this time with tongues of fire instead of a pillar of fire at the temple. And one of the most foremost effects yet again of God coming to live with his people and filling them with his presence and spirit and communing with them in prayer is what? It's that those on the outside see and are drawn and welcomed in to encounter the spirit of Jesus as well. So what's the point of all this? It was a lot of scripture we read. All this business about God dwelling with his people and being in and amongst his people in a house of prayer isn't just about his people. That's what we need to hear this morning. Y'all, the fruit of the people of God living with their God, us as a body, as a temple, filled with his presence, abiding in prayer. The fruit of that? Evangelism evangelism. That's what this is about. We can't keep this to ourselves. We can't keep the presence of God, the house of God, the welcome of God to ourselves. If we're abiding in prayer and really spending our time in the presence of the Lord, our hearts are broken for the lost. Our hearts are broken to tell them this invitation is for you too. You're not excluded. God wants you to have joy in his house. God wants you not to be on the outside anymore. He wants you to come in. He wants you to be a part of this. He wants you to receive his spirit and be part of his kingdom and to know him. So it's evangelism, and I hope you can see that. It's outward focused. It's others focused. It's foreigner and outsider focused and oriented. And it's all part of his rescue plan. Like we are part of his rescue plan. Can you believe that? I can't. I think it's a dumb idea. I mess up, but we are. And so this is what we're to be all about as a house of prayer, is those who aren't in yet and showing them the glory and the goodness of God. We're to be a spiritual house of prayer, but the nature of that is to spill out to others and to draw them in, whoever he will call. Now, I don't know about you guys. My house is often not a house of prayer. It's a house of a lot of things. I can often be a house of fear, and that's my motivating factor. I'm a house of worry often. If you know me, I can be a house of busyness, a house of like do too much, a house of will try harder. On mornings like this, I'm like a house of God, is this good enough? God, is this enough? But God's purpose is all that is put aside by his blood and his presence. And that we just dwell with him as a house of prayer. 
and we get all the good gifts from that. But I think the Holy Spirit is here. I know he's here. But I think he's ready and wanting us to get back to being reestablished as houses of prayer, houses of his presence, not houses of other things that we can add on and do for ourselves, to being both individuals in a church that is absolutely steeped in an atmosphere and a posture of prayer for the sake of the world. Because that's the way he's done it. God, I think it's a bad idea, but that's how he set it up. So that's as much as I'm going to dig into that for you. There's a lot of questions there that you can ask the Lord yourself. There's a lot of things that you can go to him with and say, God, what's this look like for me to really be transformed into your house of prayer, to be a temple of the dwelling of your spirit, of your power and your presence that others can see. There's a lot of things that this can mean. And I want to challenge each of you to take the time to do that because I think this is a direction that we're heading. I think to get to all those good things, I think to find the joy that Josh has been talking about, we, this is where we've got to be. So I want to challenge each of you to take some time, starting right now, to seek the Lord and do that. Lord, what's that mean for me? What is it that he might want to say to you about realigning yourselves in prayer? Maybe you need to do it more with other people. Maybe you need to not be so individualistic. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to say to you. But we need to be a beacon for those who are far off.